Okay, um, welcome to lesson number six, which is the Feasts of Yahweh. And I say that for a reason. I remember a few years back, uh, there was a gal, she was a cantor from a local community uh, that some of you might know. And she was over at our house and we were talking about the feasts. And I said, these were the feasts of Yahweh. And she said, no, these are the feasts of the Jews. And I said, well, uh, <laughs> let's go to Leviticus 23 on that, you know, and they were the feasts of Yahweh and that's what it says. And so, you know, he obviously has a focus on his people, but for all those also that join his ranks, I believe the feasts are for all of his people. And um, you're, you're seeing an expansion of feasts. The feasts are starting to uh, become more popular. And if you see this kind of publication, you can see this. This is right out of Rose Publishing. So if you're looking for a simple explanation, you know, of the feasts, it's a little uh, Christianese, you know, but um, they also have other things like 12 tribes. These are helpful and they're from Rose Publishing. And I would encourage you to get those, and they're like $3.99 each, or you can buy them in bulk and get a little better price. And these are helpful handouts to people and um, to get them interested. People are hearing in the middle of the night um, Yahweh saying, keep my feasts, or keep my Sabbath, or the word Torah. And I've heard these things repeatedly. And so Yahweh is reaching out to his people and reestablishing the feasts and the Sabbath. And if you go back to uh, lesson number two of this, there's a discussion of the penalty of a frame that uh, just a huge, huge group of people has been penalized for uh, over 2000 years from seeing and participating in the feasts and the Sabbath. And if you go back and read the book of Hosea, it's quite clear in that at the end of days, Yahweh, the roaring lion, roars from the east and the people from the west wake up. And so we're a part of that. We're waking up to the fullness of who Yahweh is and his character, how he operates. And so we've been blocked from his feasts and they are just a blessing. And for those that have participated, you know what I mean? We've been doing them for some 15 years. And I'm fortunate enough to be married to Audrey, who is a great giftedness in hospitality and decorating and this kind of thing. And uh, she's actually written up in a book. She's uh, part of a feast book um, that's out there. And um, the person who wrote the book asked uh, uh, Audrey for some advice and it made it into the book and little did we know. So we've been keeping the feast for about 15 years and they are a joy. And it's 15 years is long enough that it starts to become a habit, a good habit, but you can see your heart being tested as to, hey, am I treating these things uh, uh, like going to church for 30 years and doing the same thing? And, and, or am I approaching these things with uh, a joy and a curiosity and an anticipation 
because one of the cool things about the feasts is that they are the schedule by which Yahweh intervenes with his covenants with his people. And so once you understand that, that uh, this is when he intervenes big time corporately into our lives, you start thinking, my goodness, how could I ever not want to participate in his calendar? Okay, so that's one of the phrases that you hear is that, uh, man, you hear people who are participating in the feast and Sabbath, I want to be on his calendar. Well, what does that mean? Okay, so one of the things that it means is that he has a calendar that is based on uh, agriculture, based on his land, um, and based on the new moon, and based on the Bible, uh, that he um, actually participates in from his side uh, up in heaven, and we get to participate and celebrate from our side down here on the earth. And so next week we'll be talking about the tabernacle, which is uh, one of the premier patterns of the kingdom. And so uh, he has patterns, and we should participate in these patterns and get to know his character. And the pattern of the tabernacle comes next uh, week. That's the next lesson. And we're going to talk about how to approach God and how he shows who he is through the uh, pattern of tabernacle. Well, he also has a pattern of his feasts. And so, uh, my goodness, how could you not want to understand his patterns and his cycles and who he is? Um, there are seven commanded feasts. And if you've got the notes, uh, which I sent out, this is a, just a one sheet notes of the feasts. And that could be a, a greater explanation of the feasts, as I showed you before. That could be very thick books on the feasts. And so this is only going to be an hour, hour and a half of introductory uh, discussion of the feast because you could go for a long, long time about the meaning of the feasts, and you should. And that would be a separate teaching. So look it up on YouTube, just the Feast of Yahweh, um, different ways of typing it in, and uh, look up Shavuot. That's the next feast that's coming up. And dive in to wonderful teaching about the feasts, and there's really great in-depth teaching. And this is just going to be an overview and some insights to pique your interest and to answer some questions about what are they and why should I keep them, okay? So the, the first main thing to know is that they're listed in Leviticus 23, okay? And uh, we're going to go through and talk about the mechanics of the feasts so that for those of you who haven't uh, been introduced to them before, and then also uh, we're going to talk about why do we keep the Feast of Yahweh, okay? So there are seven feasts, uh, and they're actually split into two sections, the spring feasts and the fall feasts. And it feels like to me there should be three, one, and three, okay? But they're, they're typically not expressed that way. Spring feasts are, uh, um, uh, excuse me, Passover, Unleavened Bread, First Fruits, and uh, Pentecost. So the Hebrew terms of those are Pesach, Hag Matzot, Habikarim, and Shavuot. Uh, the fall feasts are Trumpets, Feast of Trumpets, uh, Day of Atonement, and tabernacles. 
And in Hebrew, they are Yom Teruah, Yom Kippur, and Sukkot. And there's also additional names for these feasts. And as you get to know them, you'll know those. Um, so these are the uh, feasts of Yahweh. There's seven of them. I think it's intentionally formed like a menorah. Okay, so you have three on one side, you have a centerpiece, and then you have three in the fall. And, uh, you know, all these things, these symbols come together in such a beautiful way. Um, and you see uh, uh, teachings that talk about a menorah uh, in Revelation, okay? And you see a menorah of the feasts, and these uh, patterns keep showing up. So uh, we'll go through some of the mechanics uh, in a bit, but those are the seven feasts, and uh, they're initiated uh, by an agricultural calendar. And so when the barley is ripe in Israel is when the feasts start. And, uh, and then in general, you have a spring barley feast. Uh, in summer, you have a wheat harvest, and in the fall, you have a grape harvest. And so those actually are really helpful. It's, to, it's helpful to know that because as you start to read scripture with a background of the feasts uh, in your head and in your heart, you start to notice um, references to these things like the grape harvest in Revelation. Okay, You say, you say that, oh, that's tabernacles. When you see wheat harvest, it's like, okay, that's at the time of Shavuot or the Feast of Weeks. And when you see barley, you know, okay, that's the spring harvest. And, and there could be um, doctrinal things that are associated with that particular feast. So as the feasts become part of who you are, uh, you start to see insights in scripture, uh, especially in the book of John. If you go through the book of John, there's a teaching uh, that I think is 12 CDs by uh, Monty Judah. That's really wonderful. And in, in the context of the feast, Yeshua is talking throughout the book of John. And if you have an underlying understanding of the feast, um, man, John just opens wide up even, even more uh, through that understanding. So we're going to talk about why do we keep the feasts? And I'm going to read from my, uh, my notes. The first reason, pure obedience. Uh, he knows more than we do. And I love it when Brad Scott says that. And it's, do we believe that? Do we believe that he knows more than we do? You know, and you have to decide that. And you say, well, if he knows more than we do and he wants us to keep his Sabbath, that's enough for me. Or if he wants us to keep his feast, that's enough for me. I'm going to do it. Well, I believe that with all my heart. So he knows more than we do, and we trust his word and his eternal perspective. So you might recall the old movie, The Karate Kid. And I love that picture. There's a Japanese gentleman who is steeped in martial arts, and his name is Mr. Miyagi. And he has a protege, and his name is Daniel. And he's training him for the big karate tournament. Okay, so in this story, I'm going to say that the marriage supper of the lamb is the big karate tournament. Okay, so we're being prepared for the marriage supper of the lamb and for the return of the king. So back to the story, uh, Daniel was told to wax his car and paint the fence of the mentor, Mr. Miyagi. And Daniel's just shaking his head and he's just thinking, 
I want to know how to beat these other guys in this karate tournament. And so he had to trust Mr. Miyagi. And he had to say, he knows more than I do. And it comes to, you know, you come to find out that these things, the wax on, wax off, if you remember, they were movements. This, uh, the waxing of his car and the painting of his fence, the waxing was a, uh, was a defensive move that needed to be trained and you needed to have strength. And so there was a purpose in it that Daniel couldn't see. Okay. And the same thing was true with painting the fence. He was going like this. Well, these were defensive karate moves that Daniel was going to use. So Daniel was frustrated, didn't quite trust his master. Um, and he was doing something that was so repetitive that he couldn't see the reason for. But at the end of the story, it was obvious how important the practice and the trust was. And so uh, I would just suggest to you, it's the same thing. Uh, we can already see so much of why it's important. Because if we keep the fall feast as example, we are on his calendar. We get to see that he's going to return in the fall. And that we may not know the day or the hour, but we do know the season, I believe. And he's coming back with an announcement. He's coming back with judgment. And he's coming back to be present with us. And that's the sequence of the fall feasts. And so once you have that inside yourself, then again, as you read scripture, you understand what these feast reference uh, really uh, are, are showing. So pure obedience is the first thing is of why we keep the feasts of Yahweh. We trust him. Number two, discipline. We are being trained as his end times army. Okay. So reread Isaiah 11. See what that says. Are we trainable? Can he trust us to do what he says? So this is very simple. So do we show um, trustability to him? And so I believe there, there is an end times army that's coming. And I believe this is part of the training. And I believe that's our way of showing how much we can be used and how much we can be trusted. If we can keep this, the, the physical things that he told us to do that are so simple, he can trust us with greater things, okay? So um, number two is, is discipline, that he trains us, uh, and that can he trust us? This is a way to find out, you know? Uh, are we trustable and trainable? Number three, expectation. We are maintaining an expectation of his intervention. Um, the Israelites kept the feast of Yahweh for almost 1,500 years before the second fulfillment of Passover and Shavuot. And so, you know, the original stories were them exiting Egypt. That's the Passover story. And then Shavuot is uh, 50 days uh, after Habikarim. And that was first celebrated at uh, um, Mount Sinai. And the word was given on that day. And so 1,500 years of keeping the feast, 1,500 years in a row, and there wasn't another intervention that we can see on the surface until he came and was the Passover lamb. And then the Holy Spirit came right on the day of Shavuot, right on time. And so uh, for those people who kept the feasts, 
uh, they were at the temple. They were there to receive the Holy Spirit. So uh, one of the questions that's answered by the feast is that um, the Holy Spirit was given to those who were obedient and those who were showing up on his time frame. Now, we can't hold him into a, in a box, okay? And so uh, he expresses himself um, through his Holy Spirit on people's lives, um, also in other ways individually, but in terms of corporate intervention, these are critical days. So the perfect timing of the Passover week and the fulfillment of the role of the Passover lamb, the first fruits of redemption, was evidence that Yeshua was the Messiah, okay? So for the people who were being obedient and were keeping these feasts, if they were really inside them and, and, and their calendar that, that they owned as participants, they were far more likely to see that Yeshua was the Passover lamb, okay? So obedience opens up our eyes. We're able to see better if we're keeping the feasts, okay? So uh, when people saw him on the cross, if they were thinking of what evening that was, that was the evening of the 14th day of the first month of the month of Aviv. So they knew that, hey, wait a second, that's Passover night. And here he is being sacrificed and he was the perfect sacrifice who had no sin. And so if they were really paying attention, they would have moved the clock back four days and seen that uh, he was being inspected. As he walked into Jerusalem, he walked into Jerusalem on inspection day. Well, if you're following the, the, uh, the story of the Passover, the original Passover story, uh, the lamb was brought into homes in, in Egypt and in Goshen so that you could inspect the lamb, that it would be perfect. And I believe it was also to get to know the lamb so that it was a sacrifice. It was difficult to sacrifice that lamb and actually be obedient to what the Lord was asking uh, them to do. So if they notice that day 10, Yeshua comes into Jerusalem uh, on a donkey and comes in and was inspected by the people along the street and then inspected by the Pharisees and the, and the Sadducees, that was inspection time. And if they're paying attention to uh, the feast, then they knew, wait a second, this is the Messiah. This is the full, second fulfillment of Passover. So he sacrificed his life on the, on the evening of Passover, and he rose again on Habikarim, which is known as the Feast of Firstfruits. What's pretty cool about the Feast of Firstfruits, or Habikarim, is that it was an open slate. It was a harvest day, but there wasn't an event that occurred. With Passover, you had the Passover of Egypt, and with uh, um, uh, unleavened bread, you had them coming out of Egypt and eating uh, matzah. Um, and on Shavuot, you had the giving of the law on the day of, uh, of Shavuot. But Habikarim, or first fruits didn't have an event that preceded, preceded it. And so I think uh, that this was this set-aside blank day that he preserved for the most precious day of the year, and that's the resurrection day of our first fruits. 
of Yeshua HaMashiach, that he was born again, born, reborn, and was resurrected. And so that's our, um, that's our example. So I think he set aside that day and intentionally didn't have a preceding moment. Um, but that was a special day set aside for Yeshua himself. So uh, let's keep going on this list of why do we do um, the feasts. So uh, prophecy, number four, his, he intervenes on a schedule that we can trust. Yeshua's life and last week on earth proved that. The fall feasts have yet to be fulfilled, and by our rehearsal of the story and the timing of it, it puts us on his schedule and on his timing. We, uh, the keeping of the feasts are literally part of the preparation of the bride. And that's talked about in uh, Revelation 19. We are rehearsing the wedding supper of the Lamb, and we are waiting for him with expectation and deeper understanding. You know, for me personally, when I heard that phrase, that um, the eighth day of the Feast of Tabernacles, which is called Shemini Atzeret, it's the last great day, is when I understood that that was the, the wedding supper of the Lamb and the marriage supper of the Lamb, wow, how could I not rehearse that every year? You know, if part of being a prepared bride is being rehearsed bride, that you're ready for that event, it's our privilege to uh, be a part of that, um, that expectancy, that yearly event of the marriage supper of the Lamb that we're practicing for, and that in our hearts, minds, and souls, we're going to be uh, a better prepared bride if we see it as such, and if we know what time it's going to be. And just like a wedding that we have normally if, when we get married, the rehearsal time is very precious time. And so um, that's what the, the uh, Marriage Supper of the Lamb is. It's a, it's a wedding rehearsal that really is, a, I love that, about that particular piece. So uh, unity, uh, coming together in obedience seven times a year is a lot of good fun and promotes uh, community in, in our group. It becomes part of the experience of remembering what Yahweh has done and how the spring feasts have been fulfilled. It helps us to prevent the great falling away. The faith is not just a belief in your head. It's a common physical practice as well. So what did I mean by that? It helps us to prevent the great falling away. Okay. Number one, um, the more that we participate in truth, and his feasts are truth, the less chance there is that we're going to be deceived. It says in Daniel 7 that the Antichrist is going to change times and laws. Okay, well, if you don't understand that his appointed times are the feasts and the Sabbath, you're not going to understand what the Antichrist is going to do. And so if you're not keeping the same calendar that he does, a seventh-day Sabbath, you're not going to see that there might be an issue where we have to choose between choosing a Sabbath that we've created versus the Sabbath that he's created. And so do we participate in creating a God in our own mind, okay? And, or do we say, I'm going to do it the way he wants us to do it and the way it's written down? So anytime that we can align with him, anytime that we can 
bathe ourselves with truth. And that should sound familiar to you. There's a verse in John 17, I think it's John 17, 17, that it says, sanctify yourselves by the truth. Okay? Well, the feasts are the truth. Okay? The Bible is the truth. Yeshua is the truth. And the more that you bathe yourself in the cycles, the more you're aligning your spirit with truth. And the less chance you're going to be deceived. And so, um, man, it's part of the sanctification process uh, are the feasts and his Sabbaths. And we've been missing that. And we've been, um, that's right, not written down in your notes. Uh, I'm just sharing that with you today. But because they're truth themselves, because you get sanctified by three things. You get sanctified by the cross. You get sanctified by the Holy Spirit. You get sanctified by the truth, which is the word of God. And so by actually practicing the feasts and the Sabbath, that's an additional way by virtue of the feasts and the Sabbath being part of his word. It's a sanctification process. It bathes your insides in truth, and it helps to clean, uh, clean out impurities. So it's a blessing. It's what we want to do. It's part of the sanctification process and alignment with him and his calendar. So if you're not doing those things, how are you going to recognize when the Antichrist changes the times that you don't keep? Right? It's part of our way of identifying who the Antichrist is. And so uh, as example, um, in 2015 and 16, the Pope declared his own uh, year of Jubilee. Well, the year of Jubilee, according to Scripture, starts on the Day of Atonement. But he chose to, the Pope chose to start it on December 8th of that year. And there's a whole other part of what he's doing and what he did. But he actually came out and changed the appointed times. And he specifically in that year of 2000, I believe it was December 8th, 2015 to December 8th, 2016, he declared that year of Jubilee of the Pope. Well, you can't do that, okay? That's Yahweh's territory and Yahweh's times. And so uh, if you weren't keeping the feast, you're not aware of that. If you weren't keeping the feast, you don't know that that's not okay. So let's go to number, number six, intimacy. We want to be close to him. So the sixth reason for participating in the feast of Yahweh, and there's probably many more, John tells us that if we love him, we will keep his commands. Rebellion separates and obedience draws you close. To be in his will is joy. It is his will that his people do his feasts. So we celebrate his character and what he has done for his people and what he promises to do for, his, for us. We trust that this brings us closer to him and that being on his calendar is what he wants us to do. And so um, it says in Zechariah 14, that we will be keeping the Feast of Tabernacles in the millennium. And so um, there's other references to that, that that's going to be a continued practice. So for some people, uh, he's waking us up early, and he's trusting us with his truth. He's trusting us with this sanctification process, and he's allowing us to see it post the penalty that we've been under, uh, that we're able to participate in these feasts, get to know him better. So we might say to ourselves, just like Daniel and Mr. Miyagi, well, why am I doing this? When in fact, it's a, it's a 
it's a trust in and of itself that we would say, hey, I don't understand all these things, but I'm jumping in both feet because you say we should do it. And you say these things are going to be restored to us all the more at the end of days. And you see that in Malachi chapter 4. Um, that's part of the restoration of all things that uh, we talked about in lesson one of this series. So this is a big part of it, is his feasts. So um, if you go through these, these notes, you'll see uh, the calendar actually uh, written out. Passover starts month one, day 10, and then day, t day 14, and then all these things. I want to just allow you to read those yourselves so you can see the mechanics of it. I'm just trying to inspire you to keep his feast uh, and that this is the preparation of the bride. So I'm going to read again. This is a bit of a repeat, but I'm going to read again this Revelation 19 passage because I believe this is a foreshadowing of uh, the Feast of Tabernacles that he gets announced. That's the Feast of Trumpets. He get, he, there's a judgment involved, which gets talked about repeatedly all through Scripture, that he's coming with fire and judgment. And then he comes to Tabernacle with his people. So if we go to Revelation 19, let's read that together. And it says in Revelation 19, 6, Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given for her to wear. So these are the clothes of us, the bride. And what does the fine linen say? Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. And what are the righteous acts of the saints? The Hebrew word for that is mitzvot, okay? Keeping his commands. It says on the next page, if you just flip your page over, it says in Revelation 22:14, 14, the last um, chapter of the Bible, Behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me. And this is verse 12. And I will give to everyone according to what he has done. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they might have the right to the tree of life. And if you use that phrase, you can see the fine linen, clean clothes, was for the bride to wear. That's part of the preparation of the bride. Well, if you go to the New King James Version or the King James Version, that same phrase says, Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life. And all that means is that as obedient sons and daughters, we do what our Father asks us to do. So it's a representation that we have hearts for him, that we're willing to do what he says. And so uh, we're saved by faith. We're saved by grace. But... The, the, uh, the expression of that is the fruit of the tree. It says, by the fruit of the tree, you'll know the tree. And so it's this awesome combination that we have of the faith uh, that, he, that Yahweh connects with, that he sees our hearts, and that he also sees how we want to please him, and that our faith uh, is shown by what we do. And that's the produce of our tree. So that's the basics of the Feast of Yahweh. And there is a summary down below 
of um, uh, lesson six, and I just want to go through some of the basics um, that in case I just uh, uh, have missed anything. First of all, they're the Lord's feasts. He tells us that himself in Leviticus 23. They are moon-based. Month one is the month that the barley is ripe. And so in uh, Hebrew, that word aviv or abib actually means ripe. Uh, and that is roughly in the month of April. They reflect the harvest seasons, uh, spring, which is barley, summer, wheat, and winter that is grape and some other uh, produce as well, like pomegranates and things. Those, are, those all come, uh, come ripe in the fall. They have the schedule of Yahweh's major interventions into the world. They have past and future multiple fulfillments and are rehearsals for the future. And they require three journeys to Jerusalem. Uh, people were required to come to Jerusalem for Passover, which really included three feasts, Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits. And then for Pentecost or Shavuot was another required journey to, to Jerusalem and tabernacles, uh, which was required and included three feasts of um, trumpets uh, of atonement and tabernacles. The fall feasts have yet to be fulfilled and they are the feasts of his return. So that's the summary. And I encourage you, encourage you to dive into these and look for YouTubes and books and all you can. Um, but there's a little more I want to say about uh, how these things are repeated. Okay. So uh, I want to go back to the, the middle feast of Shavuot and touch on that again, because it's a, it's a great expression uh, of the heart of Yahweh and how this middle feast, uh, the center of the menorah, is expressed in such a beautiful way. Um, so Shavuot happens seven weeks after uh, the Feast of First Fruits. Uh, the way we uh, keep the calendar, it's always on a Sunday. And so if you take seven weeks from First Fruits, that's how you get to that 50th day which is um, uh, Shavuot. And uh, the, the first time we see Shavuot is, as I said before, the law was given uh, at Mount Sinai on Shavuot. And so you see an interesting thing. Um, they were disobedient at the base of Mount Sinai, and they started to worship the golden calf. And so uh, they knew that this was wrong because the Torah explains what is righteousness. And the Torah explained that God is one and that God uh, is a jealous God and that we're not to worship other gods. Okay, So when they disobeyed God's instructions in righteousness, they started to worship uh, the cow god that they came from in Egypt. And so 3,000 people died uh, at that day. And so if you keep that in mind and move forward to uh, the New Testament in Acts chapter 2, you see the balance of that. And, uh, and so I'm going to read from that so you can see how Yahweh uses these feasts to show who he is. And so if you go to Acts chapter 2, it was on the Feast of Shavuot, as we talked about in the last couple of lessons, uh, this shows you that the people in the first century, uh, the disciples and everybody who was a believer, 
in that first century kept the feasts. It was part of the fabric of the faith. And so Acts chapter 2 found uh, thousands of people in the temple, the courtyard of the temple, and they were all there in obedience. And here's what it says. It says, uh, Peter replied, this is in chapter 2, verse 38, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Yeshua HaMashiach so that your sins may be forgiven. Okay, so what are the sins? Okay, you're breaking the Torah. So he's showing us how to be restored here, restored from uh, breaking these instructions in righteousness, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is, of, is for you and your children and all who are far off. With many other words, he warned them, and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. So in beautiful symmetry, um, the 3,000 that were lost because they couldn't keep the Torah were restored as Peter preaches on what forgiveness is and what restoration is and the giving of the Holy Spirit, which brings life. life. And if you're in obedience to the law, that's a life-giving thing. It is a life-giving thing to honor your father and your mother, to keep the Sabbath, and to worship Yahweh, and to see him as one and the only God that we worship. All those things are, are um, Torah things. So that's a blessing. That's life-giving. But breaking that brings the curse of death. And so we saw what happened that day. The Torah shows us that we have a need for God. And you can read that in Galatians and other places where Paul writes. Uh, the Torah shows us what sin is and that we're in need of a Savior. And so you see the story of salvation through the feasts. And we see going back to Passover that he cares about his people and that you have the first moment of corporate obedience when Yahweh tells Moses to tell the people, take the blood of the lamb, put it on the doorposts of their house. And for those people who acted in obedience and believed Moses, they were spared and the angel of death passed over them. So this was this initial picture of what salvation was going to be. And so often in the feasts and in other things that Yahweh does, you'll see an initial picture that was localized, which was in Egypt, that was going to show a greater picture 1,500 years later when Yeshua dies on the cross. The salvation that was brought to Egypt shows the greater salvation, which was offered to all mankind who would put the blood of the Lamb on the doorposts of their own hearts and lives. And so you see these things in... Uh, in the feast that they're foreshadowing uh, a greater thing later. And in addition, it also, as we keep the feasts and we watch uh, how Yahweh protects his people in Passover, this is a picture, picture of the greater Passover or the greater Exodus, I should say, that's coming with, with his return. So as we keep Passover, we keep telling the story that his arm is not too short. 
that he has redemption for us and that he sees us and knows who his people are. And if you look at all the plagues, it talks about how he specifically set aside his people from many of the plagues. Okay, so we can trust that, his, that we're going to be protected in his judgment. His judgment of the 10 plagues, uh, his people were prote protected in the midst of those things. And it says so in, ex in uh, the book of Exodus. Well, by keeping that, we know that he's going to protect us through the trumpets and the seals and the bowls that are discussed in Revelation, that he's going to protect his people. And so we tell the story of, of uh, Passover in Egypt so that we can trust him at the end of days. And the more re we repeat that, the more it becomes the fabric of our faith. And the more we can say, we know what he's going to do and who he is. And so I want to uh, read another passage to you in Jeremiah, and it's Jeremiah 16, to give you hope, to give you this same picture of what was done uh, being so great. And then what is going to be done is even going to be greater. And it's per the feast schedule. So this is in Jeremiah 16. And I love this passage. It says, uh, says the following. Um, it's, it we'll start in 12, Jeremiah 16, 12. But you have behaved more wickedly than your fathers. See how each of you is following the stubbornness of his evil heart instead of obeying me, okay? That's certainly the way we are. So I will throw you out of this land into a land neither you nor your fathers have known, and there you will serve other gods day and night, for I will show you no favor. However, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when men will no longer say, as surely as Yahweh lives, who brought the Israelites up out of Egypt. But instead, they will say, as surely as Yahweh lives, who brought the Israelites up out of the land of north and out of all the countries where he had banished them, for I will restore them to the land I gave their forefathers. So he is declaring um, that the greater exodus uh, of restoring people back to Israel is the greater promise, the greater expression of Yahweh, even then Passover. Well you got to know the Passover story if you're going to know what's greater than that. And if you're telling the story every year, it becomes the fabric of, of your faith and who you are. And so you can go to another passage in uh, Ezekiel, Ezekiel 20 uh, that talks about the greater exodus in more detail. So Ezekiel 20 talks a lot about the Sabbath. And then later in the chapter, it says the following. It says, um, I will bring you from the nations and gather you from other countries. This is verse 34, where you have been scattered with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. That's Passover talk, okay? Um, and without, without poured wrath, and I will bring you into the desert of the nations, and there face to face I will execute judgment on you. As I judged your fathers in the desert of the land of Egypt, so I will judge you, declares uh, Yahweh, I will take note of you as you pass under my staff, and I will bring you into the bond of my cousin uh, of my covenant. I will purge you from those who revolt and rebel against me, although I will bring them out of the land where they are living, yet they will not enter the land of Israel, and then you will know that I am Yahweh your Lord. And so 
he expresses himself throughout all of Scripture through feast talk, okay? He expresses, if you know the story of Passover, you're going to get the stories of what Yeshua says to his disciples. And so he references uh, this baseline of truth. And the more you understand the baseline of truth, the more you're going to get what the New Testament says about who Yeshua was and what he was saying to his disciples. And you're more able to understand the, uh, the book of John as example. So I'm going to move on to the fall feast. You know, what it looks like in progression of what has not been fulfilled yet is that it says in Revelation that there is a last trump. The final trump is what warns us that he's coming. He's coming on the last trump. Well, I would suggest to you that the last trump is the final feast of trumpets, where there's a blast of um, shofar blasts all over the world, and that his next coming, as he says, he's coming on trumpets with trumpets, I'm going to suggest to you that that might be the feast of trumpets that we blow every single year, and the last trump is the last Feast of Trumpets by which he comes down. That's the timing of, timing of when, he's, when he comes back down. And that the Day of Atonement's 10 days later, and that's the judgment that he brings to the nations. And that his tabernacling is when he comes and finally is with us for a thousand years, and we celebrate with him the marriage supper of the Lamb, uh, a.k.a. Shemini Atzeret, or that last eighth final day, that he comes to Sukkot with us. So it's per the feast schedules. And once you get that, you know, these, these passages of his return at the end times in Daniel, uh, chapters 7 through 12, and um, in Revelation, and in, in Matthew, and in Luke, these things start to come to life. And you can understand some of the prophecies better if you understand the feasts. Um, and uh, all these things start to line up. We will not be deceived, those who choose to participate in who he is, and we will know Yahweh. We will know what his name is. We'll know what his character is. We will know what his timing is, and we will be able to see it. Let me turn that off. Excuse me. And so um, that's uh, the teaching of the feasts. And if anybody has any questions on anything, I'd be happy to entertain a question. Okay, awesome. Um, so this is shorter today, uh, and, and that's fine. Um, I want to introduce you to these things in a way that you can absorb them and, and understand some broad strokes so that you can dive into these feasts. There's uh, lots more to each one. And one of my favorite things uh, on Shavuot is a piece that if you type in and Google Feast of Covenants, uh, this feast is also known as the Feast of Covenants. And it's really a wonderful teaching. It's just four or five pages. And it talks about the Feast of Covenants or the Feast of Shavuot and when it landed. And that even going back to Noah, you would also see that um, the timing of the ark and when it landed on Ararat and uh, when the bird came out and came back are on a feast schedule. 
And so it's really cool to see these things in multiple fulfillments and you say, wow, why wouldn't I want to be in on the next fulfillment of these feasts that are so precious to him? And if they're precious to him, why wouldn't you want them to be precious to us? So it's as simple as that. And uh, blessings uh, to you guys. And we'll see you uh, on Thursday. Okay. Thank you, Thank you very much. You're welcome.